from the authors of Author Masterminds. This is Mysterious. Mystery surrounds us every day. Join us and listen to true stories of mystery, from human behavior to nature and the physical environment to paranormal experiences. The stories are true, even if we can't explain them. The case I'll tell you about in this episode is the worst unsolved mass murder in Alaska history. What happened on a foggy September day in 1982 in the small village of Craig, Alaska? Hi, welcome to Mysterious. I am Robin Bearfield, and I will be your host for this episode. I'm an Alaska wilderness mystery author, and I also write and podcast about true crime and mysteries in Alaska. Commercial fishing is one of the most economically important industries in Alaska, and the three-month salmon season in the summer is one of the most lucrative fisheries. In the 1970s and 1980s, when salmon prices were at their highest, three months of hard work could earn the captain and crew of a fishing boat a half million dollars or more. A crew member on a salmon saner can make good money, but he must work hard and put in long hours. Crewing on a fishing boat is a job for young people, willing to work and ready to play on those rare nights when the season is closed and their boat pulls into port. This gruesome tale occurred near the small southeastern Alaska town of Craig on Prince of Wales Island. It might be difficult to understand why and how such a murder could happen in a small town, and more importantly, how no one seemed to know who the murderer was. I confess I don't completely understand this crime either, but I'll do my best to describe what a small fishing village is like when the fleet is in port, and how someone running around a town of 1,200 people might go unnoticed or at least unrecognized. In Alaska, the two most common ways of commercially fishing for salmon are either by gill netting or by purse seining. A gill net operation is land-based, where the fishermen go out in small boats to pull salmon from a long net attached to the shore. Purse seining is done from a larger boat, on which the crew sleeps, eats, and lives during the salmon season. Purse-saners actively search for schools of salmon, encircle the fish with their net, and pull the fish on board. The events of this story happened on a purse-saner. I hate to criticize law enforcement. Investigators have a tough job no matter where they work, but the Alaska State Troopers have the especially difficult task of patrolling this vast state with their small force. As I will explain, though, the police response in this case was slow, and the investigation far from perfect. The Facts Sunday, September 5, 1982. The investor, a 58-foot purse owned by Mark Colthurst, 
from Blaine, Washington, pulled into Craig, Alaska, and unloaded its recent catch of 77,000 pounds of pink salmon onto a Holbeck Seafoods tender. The catch from just a few days of fishing was worth $33,000, but the cannery wouldn't pay Coulters for this or any of his other catches of the summer until the end of the season. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game had temporarily closed the commercial salmon season, but planned to reopen it the following day for the final salmon opening of 1982. This is the way the commercial salmon fishing works in Alaska. The season is open for a few days and then closed for a few days, and then reopened again. The purpose of the closures is to ensure some salmon will escape the nets to swim up the streams and spawn. So when the investor pulled into the dock in Craig, the salmon season had closed, but it was scheduled to reopen again the following day. Besides Mark Colthurst, the crew and passengers on the investor included Mark's wife, Irene, 28, their two children, Kimberly, 5, and John, 4, Mark's cousin, Mike Stewart, 19, Dean Moon, 19, Jerome Keown, 19, and Chris Heyman, 18. Irene was three months pregnant. After unloading its catch, the investor pulled up to the North Cove dock in Craig, and the crew tied the boat outside a saner named Decade, which in turn was tied outside the saner Defiant. The Defiant was tied to the dock. To get back and forth to the dock, the crew from the investor had to climb across the decks of the other two boats. So, when returning to their boat from the dock, the crew of the investor had to climb across the deck of the Defiant and then across the deck of the Decade to reach the deck of their boat. Dean Moon and Jerome Keown, two of the crewmen on the investor, went ashore soon after the boat docked. According to the troopers, the two men later bought a small quantity of drugs from a friend named John Kenneth Peel. Peel had been a crewman for Mark Colthurst the previous summer on another boat, but Colthurst had fired him, and Peel was now crewing on the Saner, the Libby 8, and the Libby 8 was also tied to the dock near the investor. While on shore, Jerome Keown placed a call to his brother, and his brother later stated Jerome sounded normal and didn't indicate anything was wrong. Mike Stewart and Chris Heyman, two of the other crewmen, left the investor together, but the troopers could find no one in Craig who remembered seeing the two men that night. Stewart called his home in Bellingham, Washington, and didn't mention any sign of trouble. Mark Colthurst apparently had no cash on the boat because he wrote a check for $100 to a friend for cash so he could take his family out to dinner at Ruth Ann's restaurant in Craig to celebrate his 28th birthday. People at the restaurant later reported nothing unusual happened while the family dined. But one witness said John Kenneth Peel briefly stopped at the family's table to talk to them. Peel later denied he was ever at the restaurant. The Colters left the restaurant at approximately 9.30 p.m., and a crewman on the decade remembered four-year-old John sticking his head inside the pilot house to say hi on the way back to the investor. During the night, a storm with high winds and heavy seas pounded the dock, and the crew of the decades celebrated the end of the salmon season with a loud party. With all that noise, no one on the decade or defiance heard anything unusual, and no one on either boat remembered anyone coming or going to the investor. 
Remember, anyone going to the investor from the dock had to climb across the decks of the other two boats. At 6 a.m. on Monday morning, a decade crewman went out on the deck and saw the investor slowly idling away from the dock. He noticed the crew of the investor had inexplicably left their expensive tie-down lines on the deck of the decade. Normally, the crew would retrieve these lines and stow them on board until they are needed again. The decade's crewman waved at a man in the investor pilot house, and the man returned the wave. A few minutes later, the decade skipper also came out on deck and saw a man on the deck of the investor. At 7.30 a.m., a crewman on another saner saw the investor anchored across the harbor from Craig near Fish Egg Island. Around that same time, another witness saw the sane skiff from the investor tied to the cold storage dock in Craig. By 10.30 a.m., heavy fog rolled into Craig obscuring the investor from everyone in town. As the fishing fleet prepared for the salmon opening later that day, the investor was forgotten for the moment. The investor sane skiff, however, was in the way at the cold storage dock and had to be moved several times during the day. The captain of the decade thought the investor left the dock because of the loud party on his boat, and he radioed the investor to apologize. There was no reply. As boats headed out for the salmon opening, the fog remained so thick, most captains had to use radar to navigate. Tuesday morning, one day later, the fog finally lifted, and observers and Craig were surprised to see the investor still anchored near Fish Egg Island. Why didn't Mark Colthurst go out fishing with the rest of the fleet? A young man was seen buying two and one-half gallons of gasoline in Craig and he then climbed into the investor's skiff with the gasoline and motored out to the investor. At 4 p.m., the crew of the fishing boat Casino noticed smoke rising from the investor. After alerting authorities, the casino headed toward the investor to offer help. On the way, the captain of the casino saw the investor's sane skiff leave the investor and motor toward Craig. The captain nearly had to ram the skiff to make it stop, and when he asked if there were people on board the burning boat, the same skiff operator said, yeah, there's people on the boat, and then he sped toward Craig. Once the mysterious man in the investor skiff reached the Craig dock, he spoke to at least three people before he walked into town and disappeared with the fog. A state trooper investigator later said the man slipped into a time warp at the end of the dock. By the time the casino reached it, the investor was fully engulfed in flames and too hot for the crew of the casino to approach. Alaska State Trooper Bob Anderson was the first law enforcement official to arrive on the scene. No one in Craig had the proper equipment to fight a fire on the water, so the responders issued a mayday call, and nearly two hours later, a tug with one small pump arrived and started spraying water on the blaze. The Coast Guard was contacted to airlift additional pumps to the scene. Trooper Anderson returned to Craig and called his sergeant in Ketchikan, telling him the fire was spreading so quickly he was sure the blaze was arson. His sergeant said he would send an arson investigator to the scene. At 7.30 p.m., the tug captain radioed the Coast Guard to tell them the fire was under control. Anderson returned to the investor 
and found it burned to the gunnels and listing 20 degrees. He and a few volunteers boarded the wreckage and found the charred human remains of four people in what had been the galley of the boat. The remains were later identified as Mark Colthurst, his wife Irene, their daughter Kimberly, and Mark's cousin Mike Stewart. All four had sustained multiple gunshot wounds. As soon as the four bodies were removed, the fire flared up again and destroyed the rest of the cabin. Anderson returned to Craig, where a police officer told him he had interviewed a witness who saw the suspicious man in the investor's sane skiff. The witness said the man was 20 or 21 years old with light brown or blonde hair. He weighed 150 to 160 pounds and was wearing glasses and a baseball cap with a logo on it. Since the man was seated in the skiff, the witness couldn't guess at his height. The following morning, two more law enforcement officials arrived. The fire was still burning, so the troopers finally summoned a helicopter used for fighting forest fires, and it dumped water on the burning boat. The boat was listing badly, so the officers towed it ashore and left it there until the arson investigator could examine it. Oddly, the authorities left the investor unguarded, allowing anyone to poke around in the wreckage, and the rising tide likely destroyed most of the remaining evidence. Once the arson investigator examined the wreckage, he found more bone fragments. Jerome Keown's remains were eventually identified among the fragments, and although it was never determined for certain, investigators believed some of the remaining teeth and bones belonged to Chris Heyman and Dean Moon. No remains of four-year-old John Colthurst were ever found, and investigators believed his small body was completely consumed by the blaze. Although they weren't certain at first, the detectives determined the killer was not one of the missing crew members, because eyewitnesses were certain the man they saw operating the skiff was not a member of the investor's crew. Since neither Chris Heyman nor Dean Moon was ever seen again after the fire, they were presumed dead, and the police concluded that eight people had been murdered on the investor. Let me take a short break. Mysterious is sponsored by Author Masterminds and Readers and Writers Book Club. We invite you to join the club where you can chat with author masterminds, read free content pieces and serialize books, and buy books at 50% off the list price. Please check the podcast show notes for links to the book club and author masterminds. As I mentioned earlier, the authorities did a poor job investigating this crime, especially during the critical first few days. Even the prosecuting attorney admitted at trial that authorities badly mishandled the investigation. Police weren't able to extinguish the fire on the investor until the day after it started. By then, almost no forensic evidence remained, and the troopers couldn't be even be certain how many victims had died on the boat. When the responding officer was informed that the skiff seen leaving the burning boat was tied at the cold storage dock, he examined it briefly but decided the rain would have washed away any fingerprints, so he didn't bother to impound the boat and look at it more closely. The officer didn't even realize the skiff in question belonged to the investor. 
The authorities did have the eyewitness description of the man who bought the gasoline and sped away from the burning boat in the skiff. Considering the number of people who saw and even spoke to the man, you would think their descriptions would lead authorities to a suspect. Remember, Craig is a town of only 1,200 people. Unfortunately, the eyewitness descriptions of the young suspect were vague. I wondered how this could be possible, but then I thought about what the town of Kodiak, near where I live, is like on a summer day when the commercial salmon season is closed and the fishermen crowd the port. The town is full of 20-year-old men and women crew members. A few of these young people are locals, but most have recently come to Kodiak hoping to secure a job on a fishing boat for the summer. The locals don't know these people. Even though Craig is a small town, in the summer it is flooded with commercial fishermen from other parts of Alaska, from Washington, and from Oregon and other places. A stranger is in town is the norm, not the exception. Also, all fishermen look alike in a sane skiff. They wear bright orange fishing gear and often have their hoods cinched tight. How could anyone be expected to recognize the features and physical build of a person wearing a bulky, waterproof jacket and coveralls? The investigators believed the crew members of the investor were killed one or two at a time as they returned to the boat Sunday night. They determined Mark and Irene Colthurst and Mike Stewart were shot with a twenty-two caliber weapon. Did the killer remain on the investor the entire night? Or did he leave and return again the next morning when he ran the investor to Fish Egg Island? When he arrived at Fish Egg Island, he anchored the investor in deep water and opened the seacocks, expecting the boat to sink. He was almost certainly surprised to see the investor still floating when the fog cleared, and this is when he purchased gasoline and took the sand skiff back to the investor to set it on fire. For over a year, investigators chased leads with little luck. But when authorities finally released an artist's rendering based on eyewitness accounts of the suspicious man who had been in the investor sane skiff at the time the fire began, several fishermen came forward to say they recognized the man in the sketch. They identified him as John Kenneth Peel, a Bellingham man who had once crewed for Mark Colthurst. Authorities questioned the crew of the Libby 8, the boat where Peel was living and working as a crewman. His fellow crew members were at first reluctant to say anything which might land Peel in prison for the murders. But eventually, Larry Demert, the captain of the Libby 8, told troopers he was sleeping aboard his boat the night or early morning of the murders when he woke suddenly at 2 a.m. He heard something that sounded like pop, pop pop, pop, and said it resembled the backfire of a small engine. Then he claims he heard the blood-curdling scream of a woman. A few minutes later, he said he looked out the cabin door of his boat and saw a man walking across the decks of the Decade and Defiant, carrying a rifle. He recognized the man as John Peel. Demert said he was scared and returned to his stateroom, locking the door. He then heard someone jump onto the deck of the Libby 8. Demert feared for his life, but said a few minutes later he heard the person leave the boat. 
Demert said he'd known John Peel for many years and considered him a good friend. He felt very uneasy about testifying against Peel. Don Holmstrom, a crew member on the Libby 8, and John Peel's former girlfriend, was even more hesitant than Demert to tell investigators what Peel said to her after the murders. When the troopers pressed her, though, she finally admitted to a conversation she had with Peel soon after the massacre. She said Peel started crying and told her, It all happened so fast, I can't believe I did it. Authorities arrested John Kenneth Peel nearly two years to the day after the murders, and two years later, in January 1986, the trial proceedings began in Ketchikan. Jury selection took more than a month, with the prosecution and defense fighting over every juror. The animosity between the prosecution and defense carried over into the trial, and while both sides argued over evidence, the case dragged on for six months, becoming the longest-running trial in Alaska history. The Superior Court trial judge admonished both the prosecution and defense for their backhanded tactics. The state admitted they had only circumstantial evidence against Peel, and much of the evidence was either based on witnesses who said they saw Peel in the investor skiff or saw Peel purchase gasoline before the blaze started on the investor. The state said Peel's motive was revenge because Colthurst had fired Peel the previous year. Larry Demert and Don Holmstrom were the core witnesses for the prosecution. Demert claimed he saw Peel walking away from the investor carrying a rifle, and according to Holmstrom, Peel confessed to her he'd murdered the crew of the investor. Unfortunately, neither witness was reliable, and neither wanted to be responsible for putting Peel in prison for the rest of his life. Both Demert and Holmstrom changed their testimony several times. Peel's defense attorney picked apart the eyewitness testimony, pointing out the inconsistencies and making it clear some witnesses had changed their stories or had trouble remembering the events from four years earlier. The defense also suggested the killings were the result of a drug deal gone bad, but the defense never introduced any drug evidence into the trial record. The defense also hinted that either Heyman or Moon could have been the murderer, since their remains were never positively identified. After six months of testimony, the jurors deliberated six days before declaring themselves deadlocked. The jurors agreed not to talk to the press, but journalists reported they voted 7-5 to five for acquittal. Two years later, the state brought Peel back to trial. This time, the trial was held in Juneau. The second trial lasted only three months, mainly because the defense decided to call no witnesses after the prosecution presented its case. The jury deliberated four days before acquitting Peel on all charges of murder and arson. The investigation and two trials cost the state of Alaska nearly $3 million. Even after a jury acquitted Peel, state officials insisted Peel had murdered Mark Colthurst, his family, and crew. No one else has ever been charged with the massacre aboard the investor. In 1990, Peel sued the state of Alaska for $175 million for wrongful prosecution. 
The suit was based on a 1984 memo from one of the lead investigators indicating there was no direct evidence tying Peel to the crime. In 1997, Peel agreed to a $900,000 settlement. The authorities and district attorney stated early in the investigation that drugs were not involved in the investor murders, but rumors flowed, suggesting there were drugs on the investor, and some people believed drugs were the reason for the killings. No foundation for this rumor was ever proven, though. People in Craig did not know the Coulters and their crew well, since they usually did not deliver their fish to the cannery in Craig, and probably only did so this time because they were on their way back to Washington where they lived. The investor was a beautiful boat owned by a young man, so rumors floated that drug money had been used to buy the boat, but no one ever supplied the evidence to support this claim. Two crewmen who worked with John Peel the year after the murders claimed he admitted to them he had murdered the crew of the investor but their statements were suspect. The Coulter's family continues to believe John Peel killed Mark Coulter's and the others on the investor. Mark's mother, Sally, told a reporter she thinks Peel freaked out and did it because he was jealous of Mark and the boat and mad at Mark because he fired him from his previous boat. There is no evidence Heyman and Moon escaped the blaze and authorities believe they were killed along with their crewmates. What happened? on the investor on a September night in 1982. Many believe they know who killed the crew and passengers of the investor, but only the killer knows why the massacre occurred. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read stories about murder and mystery in Alaska, check out my true crime book, Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Also, don't forget to take a look at the show notes for links to the Author Masterminds website and the Readers and Writers Book Club. You will also find links to my books there. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss a single episode of Mysterious, where my fellow authors and I explore mysteries in the world around us.